Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Tide Chasers Podcast, where every week we try to bring something new to the table to further your fishing knowledge. Whether you be a charter captain, a bait and tackle shop, a tackle builder like last week with Patrick Seville, a biologist, a photo or video specialist, we're just always searching for someone or something to better our angling skills. Uh, and this week, uh, we have a special surprise, actually, because we have a new addition to the Tide Chasers family. Um, so I will welcome in our good buddy over from Real Lines Fishing Company, Tyler Wilczek. How are you, Tyler? I'm doing great, Bobby. How you doing? Good, man. It's great to have you on here. We're glad you can uh, join our team. Absolutely. I'm super excited. You know, you guys are good friends of mine, and uh, I've always enjoyed the show and been enjoying uh, being a guest a couple times, so I'm glad I can be on here maybe a little bit more regularly. Right. Well, listen, so I'm not only excited to have you on this week, but I'm really excited for our guest because I've been following him on Instagram for a while. I was following his adventures in Philadelphia when I was in Philadelphia for a while. Uh, always trying to nitpick his little techniques that he's doing or his special places he was going. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce the YouTube famous uh, life lister from the Philadelphia area, Mr. Leo Shang from Extreme Philly Fishing. How are you, Leo? Oh, I'm doing great, man. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity, brother. Well, we are very glad to have you. Like I said, I've been following you for a while um, because you are quite different from normal fishermen. That's a fact, I think. Oh, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. what I, the style of fishing that I do is is definitely, you know, yeah, not very common out there yet. Yeah. So uh, let's not jump into that quite yet. We always start the show getting to know our guests. We want to know your background. How'd you get into fishing? What makes you do what you do? Sounds good, brother. Uh, do you want me to like, uh, I mean, do we have a time limit for this podcast? Do you want me to summarize or can I just? It's, it's all up to you. We, we usually run for like an hour. So but for about an hour, if, if you got more to say, we're all than willing to listen. Okay. Okay. I guess for the people who are listening to the podcast right now, uh, it would be nice for them to know that 
My family is actually originally from China, but I was born and raised in Brazil. So my passion for the sport of fishing really was, you know, it was back in Brazil, right? And uh, it wasn't really so different than other people out there, to tell the truth. Um, you know, we we were like middle class back in the back in the days. I used to go to school five days a week and my father used to work five days a week. We didn't have a lot of family time, you know, that bonding time each and every week. So weekends, you know, it It was it was time to fish, right? Go down to the local reservoir and just, you know, wet some lines. And, you know, the beauty behind it is that I guess uh, when it comes to my family, we never really cared so much about any specific species of fish. So back in the days of the reservoir, it was just like throwing a worm out there, you know, and go for whatever bites today. That's how the fishing started for me. That's awesome. So, so your family was involved at all? Mom, dad? Oh, yes. Uh, my father. My mother didn't, didn't fish until recently. You know, she kind of hopped on the wagon. Okay. But yeah, since I was a kid, it was always my dad. Got it. Um, let's talk about where you are right now, though, because you are in... Uh, the city of brotherly love. You are in Philadelphia. I believe. <laughs> that Correct is, me if I'm wrong. That is correct. Yes. And as a matter of fact, you know, the Eagles are playing tonight and the Phillies are playing tonight. Oh. I know we're not here to talk about that, but just a little shout out, you know, I hope they crush the Texas crew. But yeah, no, you're right. Uh, I'm currently stationed in Philadelphia. Uh, the name of my social media platforms is Extreme Philly Fishing. And, uh, you know, I came here originally uh, to go to college. So back in the days, uh, I went to Community College of Philadelphia around the Philadelphia region, and uh, it was a very stressful time of my life, I guess you could say, because, I mean, you know, living your own country, right, for somewhere entirely new, I didn't really know the language, I didn't know how to speak English, uh, it was pretty hard for me to adapt to a new culture, and I guess that is, you know, that is how I kind of got involved into fishing here in the Philadelphia region, right? While going to college, it was very stressful. And I remember one day just walking, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, kind of clearing up my mind, right? And then, I mean, there was a river, you know, right in the middle of the city. And I saw someone fishing there and that's that's how we, it started, you know? What river was that? Was that some hidden gem or was that uh, the good old fashioned Google? Oh yes, no, that was indeed the the Schuylkill River. Yes, and actually, you know what? Fun fun fact of the day, man. The the Schuylkill River itself, right? The name. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You can look it up, but I think it comes from the Dutch from back in the days, and it does mean the hidden river, right? Because back in the days in the 1700s, when people first came here, you know, it was all woods, right, and trees. People knew about the Delaware River, uh, the bigger one but they didn't really know about the tributary, the Skugu, until they kind of explored further in. So yeah, no, it was, it was the Skugu River. That was like the first river that I fished here in, in the United States of America, yeah. I've lived in Philadelphia for six years. <clears throat> oh, nice. I lived at the River Walk, River, oh God, I can't even remember where it was. Hotel right on the Skugu Trail. Oh, I've beautiful. never cast a line in that river. I've seen people oh. fishing it. I've seen the cat, lots of catfish, but I've never cast a line. No, bro. You, yeah. you you got to come back one of these days, man. A wet a line. I've uh, you know, right into the art museum. I've seen people fish there, and I know they catch giant stripers and yes. uh, other giant catfish. And for some reason, I just never did it. I don't know what was wrong with me back then. But you know what, man? You are not the first one, you know, to do that kind of stuff. Many people they walk around the Schuylkill River, 
and they really have no idea of like you know the 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 beautiful ecosystem right or the f- different fish species that the river has to offer so yeah it happens to a lot of people they just don't think about it right and in particular the Schuylkill River being like an urban river in Philadelphia it also has um i guess a little bit of a bad reputation you know <laughs> some people really think that it's part of the sewage system in the in the city when in reality, no, there are a lot of different species in that river. And that's yeah, something that can really resonate with me as well, because um, I live out in Lancaster. It's so not too far away from Philly. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I kind of can get that same feeling because a lot of the waters that we have out here either run through very heavy farm country or run through mm-hmm. some urban areas, not as big, obviously, but, um, you know, they kind of get that reputation as well as maybe just being like a dead zone or really no mm-hmm. species in there. But you're right. There, there can really be some hidden gems if people look hard enough and spend a lot of time there. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, just just out of, uh, you know, fun fact of the day, Tyler, I just explored the Conestoga, the little Conestoga. Just oh. recently. Yeah. Past few months, you know, that's awesome. There. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it's it was too great. Bad you didn't know Tyler sooner. <laughs> yeah, I yes. was going to say, I don't fish the little Conestoga very much, but I do fish the Conestoga all the time. I only live about five, 10 minutes away from both of them. So oh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. You went to college for what? Uh, so initially, when I first came to the United States, I really wanted to get into the medical field. So when I was doing community college of Philadelphia, I was going more or more towards like a nursing kind of you know healthcare system type of career but uh, I didn't really like that in this country so I ended up switching to education and I ended up getting a bachelor of science in physics from Temple University yes oh wow okay I didn't I did not know that I knew you were a teacher I didn't know it was uh... oh yes that is correct yes I, I used to do a private tutoring before you know I got into the job that I have nowadays got it and the job you have now is a full-time YouTuber social content creator <laughs> yeah yeah it is correct yes that is, uh, I think, the dream for many these days. I mean, you, you would think, right? <laughs> I guess being because I am a YouTuber and because I've been doing this for, for more than a few years, or I've been doing it for six years now, I guess my perspective on it is a, is a little bit different. But no, I remember, though, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, when, when I saw my friends first doing it and I was like, oh, man, like, you know, you do this job and you fish and you get paid to, to, to fish, right? And you think it's like, whoa, it's like an amazing job. But, you know, after doing it for six years, though, I can tell you, uh, Bobby, that uh, just like other jobs in the market, there are the pros and the cons. Albeit, at the end of the day, I'm very blessed and happy, though, to do what I do nowadays. Yeah. Well, that was my next question. So you wouldn't recommend it to a youngster that's starting out trying to create his own channel? Hmm, that's actually a very good question. You know, um, I would obviously, you know, I mean, you know, nowadays I'm an American citizen, right? I was born and raised in Brazil, but nowadays I'm an American citizen. I'm all about that uh, ideology of the American dream, right? So I, I do have kids and younger folks coming with this question uh, via Instagram, YouTube, all the different social media platforms every month. And I always tell them, you know, like you just follow your dreams and make sure that you work hard for them however at the same time you got to have a a backup plan right that is my recommendation so in my case when i first attempted like oh i'm gonna become a youtuber you know it didn't it didn't pick up right away it took one two years you know for me to kind of 
get the subscribers, the following going, post the videos. And meanwhile, I always had a backup plan. You know, I mean, what happens if, if this, this career kind of fails, right? Well, I got my, my physics degree. I can always go back to tutoring and, and do other things, right? So nowadays, when people ask me that question, I always tell them, hey, man, go out there, try new things, right? Work, make sure that you devote yourself to it, work hard. But yeah, always make sure you have some contingency plans. You know, that's, that's, that's the wise thing to do. Did you ever have that, what I'm going to call a viral moment? Or was it just a steady growth kind of deal? Oh, no, no. I, I would say that, oh, yes, I definitely had like a, a viral moment back in the days. It was, you know, it was a new job. It was a new type of environment for me. It, it took me a little while to kind of learn a little bit about, you know, what it means to be a content creator, what it means to be a YouTuber, and how exactly, uh, you know, you get into this whole viral community, right? Like, you know, there are things of like the YouTube algorithm or different algorithms for different social media platforms. But yeah, back in the days, like without even knowing, right, uh, when my friends and I were doing the stuff, we kind of realized, oh, man, there are some videos out there, right, that when you do this content and uh, maybe you put certain types of thumbnails and titles, you, you get more views and more exposure, maybe because the platform likes to pick those videos or, you know, because of the algorithm. So, yeah, back in the days, there was a moment that, uh, you know, I got a lot of views on the channel. The channel grew up real fast. For a little while, the sponsorships kind of started to, to drop in from the fishing industry. But, but yeah, that, that is like all, all in the past now. Now, <laughs> now we're kind of out of that stage. Yeah, you could say. Would you say, you know, since you got started in, in YouTube content creation, you know, compared then to now, would you say how much has it changed? How much is it more difficult uh, than it was before? You know, I think we, we definitely see a lot more content out there on YouTube. So I'm just kind of curious how you've seen that evolve over time. Oh, for sure, Tyler. Absolutely. Uh, that's a very good question, by the way. Um, it is a different ball game nowadays if you want to become a, a YouTuber versus back in the days. Because, I mean, it is not just about videos going viral back in the days, but there was a certain time during YouTube uh, where a lot of fishing channels were just going viral, you know, people kind of picked up on the outdoors and the fishing and the cooking, you know, and all the combination of all those things. So yeah, like back in the days when I first started, for example, right, uh, I'm going to mention a few other YouTubers here. I remember, for example, certain members of the Guggen squad, like Andrew Flair or John B having only like 15 to 20,000 subscribers. And at that time, that was like, whoa, dude, that's like a big fishing YouTuber, you know? That was the time that my friend One Rod, aka Mike Shell, started his YouTube. Uh, he was gaining traction. Uh, for you to have an idea, you know, Gene Jensen, right? The Fluke Master, he was in the game already. Black Page was very small. Lunkers TV didn't exist back then. I don't mean to offend anyone here, but just <laughs> saying the facts, you know, Lunker TV didn't exist then. He just started his YouTube channel, like 1,200. A thousand, two thousand subscribers. So yeah, back then it was a different ball game because the opportunities, right? When you start a channel and there's less competition, less content, right? Uh, it was a better, I, I would say, you know, a better opportunity for you to grow your channel. Nowadays, it's oversaturated with content out there. People only have so much time. So yeah, obviously you have to take in consideration all the competition, right? 
And, uh, you know, every YouTuber goes, a, as I like to say, every YouTuber goes a different way, right? So, yeah, whatever works for you at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because actually, um, you know, when I was thinking back this week, I realized that one of the first ways that I kind of got introduced to yourself and your channel was uh, through some of the collaborations you did with Tim Galati. Um, oh, yeah. I know he was one of the first kind of fishing YouTubers that I really started to pick up on and watch a lot because he did things that were were pretty similar to some of my styles of fishing back then. Um, so that's kind of where I first got introduced to you. And, you know, like you said, a lot has changed with the YouTube game since the mm -hmm. two of you were working together. Oh, yeah, for sure, man, for sure. And uh, yeah, shout out to Tim Galati, man. He's still in the game nowadays, you know, still grinding the videos out there, doing some foraging, some fishing. So, yeah, no, I'm very glad to hear that, Tyler. That's good, man. I mean, you're doing something right because you have, last time I vetted you, you have 180,000 YouTube followers. I know you said a lot of that comes from when you were first starting up and that surge in the beginning, but what do you think makes a good YouTube video? <laughs> well, I'm not yeah, going to tell you what I uh... think a good YouTube video because I have no idea. I like your videos. I uh -huh. <laughs> watch your videos, but uh, there's some videos, you know, you watch them and you go, this is just silliness, right? So mm -hmm. What do you well, think? no, it's a, it's a tough question. It's a tough question, Bobby, for sure. Uh, you know, like I said, every YouTuber has his or her own style when it comes to fishing, uh, filming, and editing. And it is really that combination, right? All three things together, plus the person's character, right? The persona that the person puts on that really makes the, you know, the videos entertaining. So, I mean, some people, for example, they like to focus more on the on the filming and the editing. Like John B does an amazing job when it comes to that. My friend One Rod in particular, he likes to focus a little bit more on his persona and just being entertainment, do entertaining. And of course, right, when you go out there and you do shoot videos like this is a part of your career, you do have to know your demographics and uh, you do have to kind of, you know, make a little plot for each video, right? thinking about the filming angles, if the light, the audio is good, put everything together. So, I mean, there's so much more to it than just going out there, wetting your line and just thinking, oh, okay, it's going to be a, a video today, you know? No, no, there's, there's a whole thing that you need to put together so that when people are watching your video on the YouTube platform, it goes smooth for them. The plot kind of makes sense. And, you know, there's usually an objective in the video, right, that you either accomplish or fail at the end of it but when people watch it you know it gives them the entertainment and the happiness that, that they're looking for right all right i have two more questions on youtube and then i want to move on because i really want to get into life listing absolutely sounds but good i want to know how often you shoot a video and it just you, you you look back at it and you just go why why did i not do this why did i not do that why is the camera pointing at the sky instead of pointing at me something like that Oh, yeah. I mean, this happens all the time, man. You know, I mean, in terms of technical uh, mistakes or just going there, going out there and not doing something that you feel later. Oh, man, I was supposed to, you know, I should have done that. It, it, it happens all the time. Sometimes I'm out there fishing the river and I see a species of fish that I really want to catch or something I really want to catch. But, you know, the plot is not working to that point yet. So I just feel like, oh, OK, I'm going to maybe move spots and come back to the spot later. Because you, you think in your head as a fisherman, yeah, they're here. The fish are here, right? And then you come back later, you just never know what's going to happen, right? Maybe the fish is not going to bite. Maybe someone else went to the fishing spot and that person is fishing the fishing spot now. And then the plot kind of doesn't work out. 
Sometimes you put the camera out there. You think you are recording a scene oh, no. and you, you, you're talking and you're doing everything just for you to go to your GoPro and realize I, I didn't press the play button. So you just wasted like, you know, the, the whole scene that, that you could have done only one time, especially if there's like a, a fish release involved or something, you, you can't go back and redo it. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had the privilege of fishing with downstream downrange this weekend, actually. So shout out to Dan. Uh, and he is also a YouTuber. Nice. Kind of situation. Uh, and we were fishing the whole time and he was just cursing to himself the entire time. Cause I'd hear the camera like click off or I'd mm-hmm. hear it like be recording the entire time. He like son of a gun that was on the entire time. Now I can change the battery <laughs> out. Uh, there's one video. All right, I guess I'm going to keep going on this for a little. There's one video that sticks into my head that I watched a long time ago. You were in Florida, and a seagull came and, like, ate your camera or something. Oh, ate my batteries, man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that that was entirely my fault, though. I felt really bad for the bird and everything. In Florida, you know, there there are people who said, I mean, not just Florida, everywhere nowadays. There are people who feed wildlife all the time. So the birds, they get really used to the humans and the fishermen. They come very close, you know, to try to get your bait or get your catch. And it just so happened that that day, I had a piece of cut bait right next to my YouTube batteries. So this pelican, after I leave my spot to to give a cast, comes and, you know, just, you know, uses the bill or the mouth or whatever, whoop, gets the whole thing, the, the, the cut bait and the batteries together. And, you know, by the time I see it, I'm running back already. The bird's flying. He flies all the way to the middle of the inlet. And he realizes, oh, man, something's wrong with his cut bait, with his food, right? So the bird just throws up, like, boop, all my batteries in the middle of the inlet. And, and I was just like, well, okay, now, now, now I'm done, right? I mean, I can't finish the video for today because I need the batteries. I feel bad about the bird. So I will never put a cut bait next to my filming equipment again. I'll be more careful. I feel bad for the environment because now there's like 15 batteries, you know, in the in the inlet. And, and I have to spend extra money now to go to a Best Buy or some type of store to buy battery because I still have three days for the trip, right? So I can't just, oh, okay, I'm just going to sip some margaritas and not work anymore. So I had to go and get new batteries on the spot and, you know, go on with it. It was It was very frustrating that day, yes. I feel like we should have ended with that story because we always do like a fun story at the end, but that was perfect. That oh yes, I'm sorry about sure. your misfortune, but I remember remember watching that happen and then it just cuts to your face and you're just in shock. You just <laughs> oh no, it's absolutely that. fine, man. Feel free to edit whatever you you feel like it. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I was gonna say that I think the scariest moment of uh, having a GoPro camera is forgetting that you already hit the play button. And then hitting it again and you turn the camera off oh, and you yeah. miss that fish that you catch. But I don't know. A bird eating your uh, batteries and your film equipment sounds a little bit worse than that. Yeah, it's re- it was really bad, bro. <laughs> I had a friend that was in Florida on a boat and he dropped in the water and you know it was in the marina so the, all the tarpon were around. Yeah. And tarpon came right up and scooped it up and ate it. Oh, man. Kind of the same situation. Then realized I shouldn't eat this and started swimming away and then spit it out. So his GoPro is on the bottom of the inlet. Yeah, went in after he got it actually, and he's got great video of you can see because it was on up eating it and spitting it out, and it was incredible. That's nice, lucky. Yeah. All right, one more question on this because the other thing I noticed in a lot of your YouTube videos, and this will mm-hmm. segue us into life listing, um, is you always seem to stress the Latin names of fish. 
Oh, that is correct. Yes. And I can't tell you one. Um, <laughs> you, you know a lot of them by heart? And why do you uh, think it's so important to know? I mean, I wouldn't say a lot of them by heart, but yeah, like the basic ones, I, I usually have it down. You want to play the Latin name game? I mean, we can we can try if you oh, want. Good. I, I mean, we can yeah, start. You just say one. some common species and like, I will see if I can do it. I'm what's, sorry? What's a bluefish? Uh, Pomatomus saltatrix. Tyler, can we fact check this? That sounded good oh, yeah. to me. I'm, I'm going mean, to go with can, that. You can Google it up. I'm 100% positive on that answer. What's a striper? We'll go simple. Uh, the striped bass? Yeah. Morone saxatilis. That sounds good to me, too. You know, a porgy? Oh, that one, that one, I don't know. Okay, good. I was going to say get yes. out of here. You do that yes. one. But, uh, for example, right, you, you'll be mentioning saltwater species, right? So uh, New, you, you, you focus on New Jersey, right? A lot too. So say, for example, summer flounder is the Paralictis dentatus. Windowpane flounder is the Scophthalmus aquosus. Tautog is Tautoga onitis. Bergol is Tautogolabrus aspersus. Uh, dusky smooth hound, which is your typical dogfish, is Mustelus cunis. And, you know, I mean, as you, as you go, right? I mean, you just start memorizing these yeah. things. Because I use it so much for my YouTube videos and is a part of my career. So, yeah, I kind of know a bunch of them by heart. So that's my question. Why do you think it's so important to know them? Like, why do you? Oh, I see. So um, because the because a good portion of my YouTube videos are about life listing, there's a lot of science involved when it comes to it. Because in order for you to be a life lister, you need to be able to identify your fish correctly. Otherwise, you, you, you can't just, you know, say, oh, I've caught this fish if you don't know how to properly identify it. And it just so happens that when it comes to our community, albeit is small, it is a global community. We have life listers in, in a lot of different parts in, in Europe, in particular in the Netherlands. We have life listers in Japan. We have life listers in Africa, particular South Africa, Kenya. We have life listers in Oceania, you know, so like all the different continents. And, you know, you can't really just shoot a YouTube video when you are trying to portray to the life listening community and just say, oh, guys, today I caught a tessellated darter, right? I mean, people watching from the United States, they will know, oh, okay, it's a tessellated darter. But if there's a life listener in Africa, for example, that person may not know what it is. When you do emphasize the scientific name, which is the Latin name, the binomial nomenclature, they can just get that word, those two words, type it in on any website and find out what a tessellated darter actually is in their native language so that they know like, oh, this is the species that Leo caught. And that's why it's kind of it's kind of important for, for us to know that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so I'm a trout guy. So I study mayflies a lot, which have a lot of Latin name implications. And there's a certain point <laughs> in my life where I wanted to know all the like mayfly latin names oh that's cool we're man we're not gonna play this game because i don't know any of them <laughs> oh, okay okay but i have lots of books over here that have names of all the latin species and, and i understand why it could be so important but the problem we had was uh scientists kept changing them on us or they kept reclassifying mm -hmm. our bugs like there's a sulfur which is a little yellow bug no mm -hmm. march brown is a better one and they reclassified the march brown to something else Oh, I see. It kind of threw everything off, and it was like, well, now what do we do? Oh, um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, Bobby. In the fishing community, this happens all the time too. 
every year we need to kind of be on top of our games, you know, when the genus of a fish has changed or the species. So yeah, like I said, there's a lot of science involved and sometimes it can, it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt, you know, for sure. Well, I know science is a pain. I'm well aware. <laughs> so, you know, you started talking about life listing and life listers and, um, you know, that's something that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, maybe some of our listeners aren't that familiar with it as well. Could you maybe explain to us a little bit more about life listing and uh, what makes someone a life lister? Oh, of course. I'll be delighted to. Yes. Um, well, first and foremost, I would like to say that I'm honored to be here in this podcast, by the way, to be able to talk a little bit about my craft, because life listing is, is still not very common uh, in the fishing community. The whole trend of life listing kind of started with the bird watchers, like the folks from the Audubon Society. So we fishermen kind of stole that from them. And the whole idea for the bird watchers was for people to just go out there for fun and with binoculars, right, and different tools and observe all different types of species of birds out there. And one day someone just had this wonderful idea like, oh, why don't I start a little notebook and I keep track of all the different birds that I have seen before. And that was like the beginning of the bird life listing era. For those who actually play video games and they're familiar with the concept of Pokemon, when you play Pokemon, there's something called a Pokedex, which is pretty much a list of all the different creatures, Pokemon that you've caught before. Uh, the concept of life listing would be very similar to that. You create your own life list from zero, from nothing. And then every fish that you have caught on hook and line in the mouth, you just add it to that list. And then you give them numbers, you know, like, oh, today I caught a red breast sunfish. That was my first lifer. That's how we refer to them, lifer. Like my first one ever that I caught on hook, uh, hook and line in the mouth, right? And then the number just goes up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and, uh, and so on, you know? And, then, <laughs> you know, just a fun fact of the day for this question too, right? I think just last week, you folks uh, interviewed Patrick, Patrick Seville, right? He's not really like a life lister, life lister, but he does keep track of a lot of the species that he catches. So, you know, when he goes out there and he tells people, yeah, I've caught like 650 plus, I think it's like 680 or something different species, right? That's pretty much what we life listers do. Yeah. We constantly go out there to different areas, you know, different states, different countries, and try to find anything that we have not caught before to add it to our list. Yeah, that's really cool because I think a lot of times, myself included, you know, we might have a, a bucket list of fish that we want to catch, you know, in our lifetime or in a given year or anything mm -hmm. like that. And, um, you know, we, we maybe limit ourselves to that, mm -hmm. uh, whereas your, your idea and life listing sounds a lot more open. You know, it sounds like whether that was the intended species or not, you know, it's still really cool that, that we were able to cross that off, you know, the list or add it to the list, mm -hmm. I guess I should say. Um, and it's more all-encompassing. I guess oh, is kind of what I'm hearing you describe. I'm with you. I'm with you on that, Tyler. You, you got the perfect idea right there. Yeah. The interesting thing here is, though, right, if I ask Tyler what his bucket list fish are, if I ask a normal guest what their bucket list fish are, it's usually like 50-pound striper or red. Oh, fish, yeah. Uh, Gubera snapper. What would be your bucket list? Because I'm guessing it would be smaller species. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that is true. I mean, if you study the, the ichthyofauna of the United States, right, meaning all the different species that we have available, it just so happens that the majority of the species, they are very, very tiny. 
And a lot of those species, uh, they just don't grow, you know, like very, very big at all. We're talking about different types. Well, okay, let me just put it this way, okay? These are the species of fish that are the regular fishing community, in particular the saltwater community, usually referred to as bait, shiners, minnows, which is just a general terminology, right? But if you go there and you look at their patterns and you look at their colorations and everything, you will kind of come to realize, oh, there's actually a lot of them, different ones. So I guess the beautiful thing about being a life listener, like Tyler emphasized, is that you, you are really open-minded when it comes to the ecosystems that you hit when you go out there fishing. And for us, it really doesn't matter, you know, the, the size, the colors, right? Uh, the species per se, it is more like we understand that every species out there is unique and every species has its own role in, in nature. And we just go out there targeting all of them, right? So for us life listers, usually like bucket, bucket list fish, right? Are always the species that we have never encountered or, or caught before. As far as it is something that we've never caught, any life lister will be happy to say like, oh, okay, I want to target this one next so it's usually like that what, what's next on your list uh so i <laughs> well wait, my wait, better, better question do you plan hmm. your trips based on species or just location uh for me it is more like location nowadays back in the days it, it was more species uh life listing is a very expensive type of niche for sure especially nowadays when you know prices of everything are, are going up so I always need to think about the airfare. I need to think about the, the lodging. And uh, back in the days, I didn't have to worry so much about these things. So I always thought, okay, man, I want to go target that fish. I'm just going to travel all the way there and do it. But nowadays, yeah, we do. I, I do a lot of research in advance. You know, I have all different types of books right here uh, in my house from different states from around the country. Some ethology books, fish species books. And I usually try to select areas where I can maximize my chances of catching as many species as possible in a short amount of days uh, using the least amount of money as possible. So that's how it is for me nowadays. What's, what's next on the list? Uh, Louis, uh, I'm going to Louisiana in, in two weeks. I'm going to be fishing around New Orleans. And there are a few killifish and a few other different types of tiny species that I don't have there yet. So, so yeah, I'm actually surprised you folks are not laughing and stuff because this is the time usually when people really laugh at this. No, thing. well, that you just segued right into my next question because <laughs> I, mean, I know I sent you a list of things, but one of the ones on here is how the hell do you uh, catch Killy yeah. with the hook and line? I mean, I mean, I use small stuff in my cancer research. I use mm. microliter size volumes. Are you using oh, micro size hooks? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yes. When you get into the life listing, uh, micro, we call it micro fishing it is, a, is a big part of the game. And, you know, when I say micro fishing, I don't want people to misunderstand. OK, when you go out there and you catch a five, six inch bluegill or a five, six inch green sunfish for a lot of anglers, it is small. Right. So they're usually like eh, I'm micro fishing today. That's not what I'm talking about. OK, when you get into the life listing and you really go for the micro fishing, we are talking more about the species whose range is in the, you know, between two to three to four inches, right? Not to take, not to mention that, that those species in particular, they don't tend to grow above, above that size. So we do need gear that is very specialized 
for microfishing. And I mean, Bobby, you, you being a fly angler, fly fisherman, right? Uh, you're probably familiar with size 30 hooks that you use for dry flies, for example. Uh, so, so we use size 30 hooks to catch like killifish, just that we, we buy them specialized from Japan, right? Uh, they're called Tanago hooks. And uh, we buy them specialized from Japan. They come bare with no bait. There's no fly on it. So it, it's, it's very interesting, you know, especially if you have fat fingers, you know, like I do, you, 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 it's very difficult sometimes for you to put a tiny, tiny piece of bait on the thing and just, you know, put it right in front of the fish and make sure you didn't spook that fish yet because you were kind of like a giant for that fish and be able to catch the fish. So yeah, there's a whole art behind it and it is not always easy. So this weekend when I was fishing, Mm-hmm. I was actually with Kwai and, and Dan again. There was okay. blue-winged olives hatching, which are usually somewhere between size 18 to 24. Okay. And this weekend, they were like size 22s. And that's when I say, nope, not happening. We're done fishing. <laughs> I can't see I it. See. I can't touch it. I put on 7X, which is very, very thin line. And it's uh-huh. just like, you cast it out as far as you can. And I'm just looking at nothing. I have no idea what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I can't even imagine what you're doing. And you're using spin rods mostly. I mean, how do you cast a size 30 hook, which by the way, I've never seen or never used because that's way too small. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, it depends on the technique that you're using for the day. If you need actually a longer reach when it comes to the micro fishing, there are these telescopic rods and uh, special made rods called Tenkara rods mm-hmm. that you can just tie the line to it and just cast it out there. Uh, the majority of times when people are micro fishing for life listing, they, they are actually able to see the fish in front of them. So for example, when you are around the creek and you are on land or even waiting and the fish is kind of like very close to you. So you can just drop your very thin line with just like a split shot, you know? The, 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 the smallest split shot that you can find for the current that is there and drop the hook just right in front of the fish and just, hopefully entice it to bite this is usually how it is uh although i do have to say that i've done some crazy things when it comes to life listing in the past so i don't recommend other life listers to do it but i have tied size 30 hooks in creeks and just cast it out there like i'm drop shotting with a little tiny piece of bait and yeah caught shiners and even caught lifers right species i never caught before but yeah that's a that's a very dangerous game because you don't see anything and anything can get your little hook. And if you do hook even like a bluegill, okay, your hook is going to be gone. <laughs> yeah. So it is a very dangerous game. Yeah. I'm just picturing you getting spooled by a bluegill right now yeah. while you're out there <laughs> trying to catch some of those. How do you um, – go ahead, Tyler. Oh, okay. I was, I was just going to say, I'm assuming, you know, having never fished any of this type of gear before, I'm assuming what you're using is, is pretty sensitive because those bites – uh, you know, while I know some of those shiners can be a little on the aggressive side, you know, I'm assuming that it's still a pretty light bite when compared to most of the game fish that we're maybe used to. So is, is that, do you find it still uh, pretty sensitive enough for you that you can really feel what's going on with your hook and, and you still get a little bit of a fight going on, or maybe you can describe that for us. Mm, actually, you know what, that's a very good question. Uh, when it comes to life listing, particular micro fishing for a smaller species of fish, I really think that we life listers, we don't, we don't really expect to get a fight out of a tiny fish. 
our adrenaline really comes from the moment that you land the fish, you see the fish, and you're just like, whoa, I never caught this before. And because it is a part of your craft, right? It's kind of into you already, that adrenaline pumps in and you start shaking because you realize I've just added something new to my to my Pokedex. But that being said, yeah, you do need gear that is very specialized for that. So I use an ultralight setup. Uh, I use one of the most expensive rods in the market. As a matter of fact, when it comes to spin rods for ultralight, it's called the Daiwa Kage. And the market price for it, I think, is about $180 to $200. But it's the, one, it's the only one right now in the, in the American market that has what is called a solid tip technology, meaning that the tip of the rod is actually solid. And that gives you great sensitivity, even for tiny, tiny shiners, that if you just put your line down there, two to four pounds test line, little split shot, even if it is a tiny shiner, like two inch, and the thing kind of bites on your line, yeah, you can actually feel the sensation on, on the tip of a rod. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can't really go out there with like a, an ugly, ugly stick GX2, you know, and just expect like, oh, I'm going to, you know, feel the bite from the from the shiner, right? <laughs> a lot of life listeners, they take this seriously too. They go out there and they get the Tenkara gear, which again, very sensitive types of, of rod that you can really feel like even the tiniest bite like that. I'm so fascinated by this. I have to tell you, I'm so, it's such a, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just a different way of fishing that, you know, I have to think back now and figure out what my number is. I mean, <laughs> what, what is, what is, what is a competitive number? Wait, is it a competition? Oh, that, that, that's actually another very good question. So there are no set of rules and regulations when it comes to the life listing community. Uh, there are, for example, communities out there. So people, they get together and they kind of came out with an unofficial Bible of it's like, okay, these are the 10 commandments of life listing, right? If you want to fish on a competitive level, you kind of need to follow these rules, right? Uh, things like, oh, you can't net fish. It has to be caught in, in the mouth. You can't snag fish. It has to be caught in the mouth, right? That, that kind of stuff. But because it is the type of community where, like I said, there's no set rules. If you fish for competition, meaning that you're competing with people for numbers and you like the attention, you love that stuff. Yeah, you kind of have to play by a set of rules. But if not, uh, you can do whatever, whatever you want and whatever makes you happy uh, at the end of the day. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things about life listing per, per se, you know. We have life listers out there, for example, that they, they count uh, fish that they have netted before, that they have never caught, you know, in the mouth. And I'm absolutely fine with that. We have life listers out there who snag fish and they count it. I'm okay with that. We have life listers out there who count hybrids and subspecies, which according to science, especially ichthyology, a hybrid is not exactly a species. So we don't count it. If I catch a tiger trout, for example, I don't count that on my life list because that's a hybrid. But there are many life listers out there that they will, you know, appreciate the beauty of a tiger trout, the uniqueness to it. So they will count it on their on their life list. So, yeah, it, it's tough. If you want to play like, yeah, I want to compete with people, you can't really do that. It's not nice to do that. But if you're just doing for fun, it's kind of like your little personal diary uh, at the end of the day. And you can do whatever you want with it. Okay. You've confused me on one of those points. I get them all. The hybrids confuse me. 
Mm-hmm. Use tiger trout for an example, because the tiger trout is a, a wild fish in, in naturally occurring in nature. Now, sure, sure. Arrow, of course, and we introduce them ourselves, but mm-hmm. you go to a wild trout stream that has brook trout and brown trout, and you can catch mm-hmm. a tiger trout. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that still would not count because it's a hybrid. That is correct. Just because from the science itself, like from zoology itself and ichthyology, the study of fishes, they just don't take scientists, they just don't take the hybrids to be a, a species per se. So, you know, when we have the binomial nomenclature, right, with the genus and the species, the tiger trout would be Salvelinus fontinalis cross Salmotruta, right? Because it is the brook trout and the brown trout. It's a cross between the two of them. We only count fish that have, you know, genus and species. So like a rainbow trout on, on Corinthus micus, right? We count that. A brown trout, Salmotruta, we count that. Brook trout, Salvelinus fontinalis, we count that. But when it's like a hybrid, yeah, we don't count it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I'm not saying everyone, like I said, okay? It, it really it varies from life lister to life lister. Yes. No, I get it. I just, when scientists reclassify the tiger trout, uh, that's a good question. I mean, so far they haven't, uh, I don't, I don't think so, but, uh, you know, there are some things when it comes to science that it's, it can be pretty funky. So, you know, we just tag along with whatever the re- we leave that in the hands of the researchers and the people who are doing that job, you know, what but is just the- so I understand. Um, so just so I understand though. So different strains though, you said, mm-hmm. so for example, like one, um, this spring I caught my first cutthroat trout and I understand mm-hmm. there's maybe half a dozen or so, I forget the exact mm-hmm. number, different strains of cutthroat trout. Would each of those then count as a different one on, on the list, if I'm understanding correctly? Uh, so, yeah. So that's a very good question again, right? If you are fishing like in, in a competitive environment, like you want to be a part of the community with the numbers, then no, it doesn't matter how many different subspecies or strains of the cutthroat trout, you would count only one. But if you're just doing it for fun or you want to keep a list just for fun like that, you know, yeah, if you caught 12, you can just put 12 in there, you know, and just count all, all 12 of them. Although I do have to say for the major players, when it comes to life listing, like the top folks out there, everyone does play by the rule that is like, you know, we don't we don't really count the hybrids or the subspecies at all. If I catch a northern strain bluegill and I go to Florida and I catch what is called a copper nose bluegill. We, we only count one as a single one because they're just two different subspecies of, of the same species. Yeah. Gotcha. So you're a new life lister. Mm-hmm. Never caught in a striped bass before. Okay. And you go out in Jersey. It's uh, November 3rd, like Quaz out there today. And mm-hmm. there's the biggest blitz in the world. Okay. Us, us fishermen, I, I want to catch as many as I can. I like the fight. I like everything. Life lister. Mm-hmm. Catches one and he's done. Oh, that, you know, you you guys are asking really good questions tonight. Yeah, <laughs> something so, I mean, you don't really, know about Leo. This is so, like, <laughs> so yeah, it really it really depends. It, it depends on the circumstances. For example, if you are on a life listing trip, and uh, you know that the striper is the only species there, you know, in that school, and you have other targets on your list for a limited amount of time, I would believe that the majority of life listeners they will catch maybe one two three just to confirm and then move to the next target because they don't want to to waste time but if you tell me like oh okay i'm coming down to the jersey shore there's a major blitz and the striper is my only target today oh yeah 
man. Life listeners will have a blast. Just catch a bunch of them, you know. Yeah, go out there and uh, throw all the homemade poppers and stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever fish for not lifting life listing anymore, or is it just always that? Oh no, no, no! I fish for not life listing all all the time. Yeah, some days I just feel like doing something that is not life listing, so I'll just go out there and uh, you know catch whatever whatever I feel like. I feel like going down to Jersey right now to catch saltwater <laughs> fish, you know, even though I got the majority of them already. Yeah. Uh, all right. One more question. Then I think we should move on. Sure. What is the max number mm -hmm. for a life lister? Is there one? Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, I really think it would be pretty much impossible. Yeah, I, I can confidently say that it's impossible for someone to go out there and really catch all the different species of fish in the world. Uh, we do have uh, an unofficial top five, top 10 list. And uh, the fellow who is in number one right now, his name is Steve Wozniak. And I believe that he just passed like 2,100 different species of fish or something like that. And then probably we have about five or six people. in the, I mean, I haven't really been following the rankings, but we probably have five or six people who have surpassed 1,000. Uh, I know that there was there's one fella, Eli, uh, obsessive angling on Instagram. He has passed 1,600 for sure. There's another one called Kenneth said musky bait. He has passed 1,000. There's a, an old fella from Canada, George, passed 1,000. So, yeah, those are like the big players, though, you know, the people who really went to a lot of different countries, different states, and they're doing all the traveling and the life listing. And uh, while they're there, we are down here, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm together with the crew who is like, it's still not 500 yet. Yeah, um, I think one thing that I just wanted to kind of say that really mm -hmm. stood out to me about about life listing that you were talking about, because you started off this conversation saying that. You know, most people wouldn't understand about the thrill of catching a, a new type of a shiner or a Keeley fish. Mm -hmm. But um, and then you went on to say about what really resonates with you is the beauty of some of these fish. And I can mm -hmm. I can kind of speak to that as well, because I know there's a, a stream that I like to go hiking near um, not far away from where I live. And certain times of the year, I'll see uh, I believe they are um, greenside darters uh, or okay. rainbow darters, one of the two swimming around in full color, the oranges, blues, the greens. Mm -hmm. And they are perhaps one of the most beautiful fish I've seen in fresh water. Now, mm -hmm. I can't say that I've ever thought about going and trying to catch them before. Um, but, you know, sometimes kind of like what you said, the most, the most beautiful things that we can see when we're on the water come in small sizes. They don't necessarily have to be the biggest, most giant fish that that's is swimming around. That's, that's very well said, Tyler. I appreciate Leo, you, it. You need that spot. Have you caught in a green sided dar darter before? Oh, yeah. Eteostoma blenioides. I've added that one already. Yes. Unreal. So I did a proper vetting of you, so I can tell you like your underwear size, but I know you sit at 398, if, I, if I'm correct. That is correct. Where does that put you in this rankings? But also, I want to know, where is this magical rankings? Where, where do we find this? Oh, yeah, actually, that's that's yeah. OK, so there are two websites out there on the Internet um, that where, where, where people really have this kind of un unofficial rankings. I say unofficial because a lot of people, they have already passed those numbers on those websites, but they just haven't had the time to to update them. One is called speciesHunters.com. That is like uh, more like an European website that has the Netherlands live listing crew. 
but there are a lot of Americans in there in there too. Uh, Luke Offgard is one of the 1,000 plus crew dudes, and he is there, and he lists all his 1,000 plus species on that website. And then there is another website out there called rothfish.com, which is another community. And yeah, they also have like the rankings, you know. And, uh, you know, it's one of those websites that is more like, like a forum, but everyone has a profile page. And in your profile page, you can add the photos of all the different species that you've caught before. And then the owners of the websites kind of turn all the profiles into kind of database. So you have a little search box and you can just search bluegill. And then it pops up there, all the different people who have echo bluegill, you know, all the entries. So that, those are like, uh, that, that is like one way that we keep track of uh, who has caught what. And, uh, you know, within the life listing community, there are like this concept of trophy catches too. Uh, it's not the saltwater fisherman trophy striper concept. It is the concept of, for example, I've caught this fish and nobody else in the community has encountered or caught this fish. So the life lister feels really good about it, you know. Or another time, it is a very rare catch, a species that is very hard to catch by hook and line, and very few people in the entire world have caught it. So there are these things in the life listing community too, you know, not all species are equal. There, there, there's a the sort of favoritism, you know, towards certain species because they're either harder to catch or hard to find. And uh, that's all included, you know, in the, in the list out there, the rankings. So I just typed in speciesunders.com. Mm-hmm. And 398 would put you in the top 20 based on this. Put you oh, right yes. But uh, but I tell you what, though, that that's not like all the life listeners in the community. There was only that crew. Yeah. 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 But I didn't even think about it because I wanted mm. to click on this just so I could see how this breaks down. They break it down by everything. There's 2022. There's all time. There's unique species. There's one that's caught on the fly near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what a globe trotter is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, me neither. Came through the ice. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. But but you know but you know what I'll tell you uh, the fly category would suit you would suit you really well, man. I have a friend in Connecticut, uh, Rowan Little, City Fly Fisherman, I think, or something like that. Yeah. He does life listing, but he only counts the species that he has caught on his fly setup. So he's like a fly fisherman, life lister. And he does a real good job. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Here is at 150. And I don't think I'm anywhere near that. <laughs> don't. Um, yeah, it's all right. Don't feel, don't feel too bad about it, man. 99.9% of anglers. I get, I, I'm telling you, this is, this is real. This is facts. 99.9% of anglers. They, they don't catch really more than like 20, 30 species in their lifetime in if you you know sum up all the anglers in the entire world and did the math i i, I actually read that in some book out there you know one of these days well i mean i would believe it i'm trying to think right now like okay so i go summer fishing every year and i catch mm-hmm. fluke stripers bluefish blowfish flounders okay weak fish perch and i'm running out of things in my name but i'm at seven see bro got a good list going like, what the hell man <laughs> <laughs> nuts all right well hey man this has been super cool but I'll, i want to move on to one other thing sounds good um, because we like to help our listeners out um, okay learning some new technique that they can go out and try and 
hell man maybe we're gonna get some requests about they're gonna go in and catch some killifish after this episode drops <laughs> um, but you work for work for or work with a company called euro tackle i believe that is correct yes what is so special about euro tackle and what do you do with or for them oh bro i would call it like one of those uh, contracts of destiny you know <laughs> first, first and foremost, I, I would like to emphasize I've worked with different companies in the market in the past. When my YouTube channel was doing really good back in 2017, 2018, I had three to four different sponsorships out there with three different, three different, you know, three, four different companies. So I kind of know from experience how it is to work with different people with different ideologies uh, when it comes to their products. And one thing that really stands out about Eurotackle in particular is that the owner of the company, uh, Benoit, uh, also my friend, he, his style of fishing that he did while growing up is actually very similar to the style that I did. Now, he is not exactly like a life lister, but he grew, he's from Belgium. He grew up in Europe. He used to do competitive fishing in Europe. Uh, actually, it's called match fishing over there, where people line up the canals. And uh, they use very light tackle on like long poles, like telescopic style, bamboo style poles to catch different type of rough or coarse fish, as they call in, in Europe, like, uh, you know, like a rudd or a bream. Like uh, if you're thinking the, um, the American version, if you have ever seen a golden shiner, you know, that people use for bait, they catch those things over there. So that was the first thing that got me really involved with this company, right? When they reached out to me and they said, man, well, I, I want to work together with you. I was like, heck yeah, let's, let, let's do it, you know? I mean, because the ideology is there. And, you know, he did these competitions for a little while, catching all different species of fish. And then he moved on in Europe to something that is called street fishing, which is something that resonates with me a lot too. That would be the equivalent of urban fishing here in the United States of America, like in Europe, in different parts of uh, the cities, people, they, they go, do, you should see it. They go out there with full bags, man. They have like a little fanny pack style thing for the lures. It, it feels like they're in the city, but they're there like hardcore fishing, trying to catch European perch, Xander, pike, all those different species. And uh, that's how the brand really, really came to be, you know? He, he fell in love with that stuff over there using lures to catch, you know, different species of fish. And he wanted to bring that culture to, to the United States of America. So that's how the Eurotaco brand was, was born. I've been working with this company for a few years now. And, you know, we specialize in, in lures that are towards the ultralight, the finesse community, like light tackle fishing. Nowadays, there's this new fever going on for ultralight bait casters that they call the bait finesse system. So we specialize for very tiny, light lures, you know, and soft plastics and hard baits just for these people to do kind of like multi-species. Yeah. Interesting. So we're talking small lures, but we're not talking size 30. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're not talking size 30. No, for sure. We're talking lures in the range of like one to three inches with some soft plastics, even going below one inch, like 0.75 inches, uh, you know, 0.5 inches, which I have to say, uh, it was a very interesting thing because the ideology, like I told you, was to bring that culture from Europe. 
But in the United States of America, just like by coincidence, I guess, right? Like, I don't think you realize that the ice fishing community mm. really liked the brand. Because, you know, during the wintertime, they use tiny jigs with tiny soft plastics. So they made that connection, right? Oh, man, you have some really cool tiny soft plastics. And nowadays, the brand also does extremely well with ice fishing. Like we have, uh, you know, the company has a, a great demographic for like the middle of the country, like Minnesota, Wisconsin, which is like capital ice fishing, you know? So that's that, that was interesting for sure. Really cool. Yeah. Not have made that connection either, but you're totally right. When we ice fish, we use very small lures, usually tip with some live bait, little meal, yeah. meal worms or pieces of earthworms or something. Um, which does bring me back because we forgot to talk about it. Mm-hmm. What do you use for bait to catch a killifish? Uh so um hmm, okay. So it depends. It depends on the species of fish that you would be targeting. So we always carry, for example, some red wigglers, which is kind of like a nightcrawler, like an earthworm. Uh, Sometimes you go to the pet shops and they have these baby red wigglers that are kind of smaller. So it's easier for you to put on the hook. However, sometimes when you're on the creek uh, targeting, for example, say the green darter, green side darters that Tyler was talking about, or the rainbow darters or some species that is very finicky. They don't want what you put in front of them. Uh, what we do is go back to the old approach of, you know, giving to them what, what they want to eat, right? So we flip some rocks in the creek. We see the different tiny organisms that are just crawling through the rocks. You know, really the stuff that you see in those alien movies, but like microscopic version, right? Like they really look like alien creatures, you know, with the antennas and the head and everything. Those tiny, tiny microscopic thing. And then you just put that in the hook, on the hook, you know? And you put it right in front of the darter. And sometimes it is a food that they're used to seeing and eating. So, yeah, if you can't find the bait out there in the market, just go to a local creek, flip some rocks. You will see all kinds of, uh, you know, you will see mayfly larvae. You will see like fly larvae. You will see all different types of little organisms. Whatever you find that is moving out there, put it on the hook and you will, you will hopefully catch some micros. Yes. Oh, the one thing, though, that uh, is kind of terrifying, I, I do have to tell you, is when you find hellgramites. Oh, you yeah. Know, which is the, oh, which yeah. is the Dobson fly larvae. That thing, man, is, uh, yeah, I mean, I know people use for smallies and, and other things, but yeah, if you find those, just be careful. That Those things will pinch you, pinch you pretty bad. Yeah. I, you could see me and Tyler's face right now. Our, our listeners can't, but we're in shock because <laughs> I go into the river and I flip over rocks because I'm looking at them because I want to know what's hatching that day. What is What mayflies are out and about, right? Oh, I see. Okay. And then, yeah, so I don't think you're much of a fly guy, right? So but we go in there, we flip it over, and we look at what mayflies are there, what scuds are there, what nymphs are there. And then we pick a fly that imitates what's there, get the size right, get the color right, right? And I've always thought I should just pick those up and put them on the hook. Of course, in fly fishing, as soon as you would do a cast, they would fly off and they'd be in eastern mm-hmm. on the other side of the bank, right? But mm-hmm. you are actually fly fishing w- with without using flies. Or would you? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how we're going to say here. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess you could say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, definitely do, I've definitely done it the old style, you know? Like, for example, when you go out there for the... For the classics, right? Like the the threat is on fishing, or just Isaac Walton's the complete angler. He he lists in his book, you know, like the dapping technique, 
or just like going out there, you know, like with a pole, a line, not like, you know, the modern fly fishing that you do the 10 to two and cast it out there. Yeah. So yeah, if you think on that approach, like the old time style fly fishing, yeah, you could say that we do, we do that quite often. Yeah. I mean, that's how fly fishing started, right? We saw that bugs were hatching and trout were eating them. Mm -hmm. And then they realized they can't put them on the hook very well. So they started tying imitations, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful history your folks got. Unbelievable. Now, this may be a, a completely ridiculous question, but oh, since wow. I'm all new to this, I'm curious. So mm -hmm. when you're fishing those small of a hooks, you know, like what, what you were describing earlier, have you ever had any of the, the species that you're targeting just strike the bear hook? seeing something so small and so shiny, they just run up and hit it real quick. Oh, yes, yes, for sure. If you, uh, depending on the species that you are targeting, you can really dap the hook with no, no, no bait whatsoever. And if it is a surface-oriented fish, right? Like, for example, the killifish is a surface-oriented fish. The mouth kind of points upwards or like a silver side, which is a surface-oriented fish. Oh, yeah, man, you just dap the thing on top of the water a little bit. And they come over, they, they will check it, they see it's shiny, and you will catch them sometimes with no bait whatsoever. Uh, some other times when the species is a little bit bigger and your hook and your presentation are small in comparison to your split shot, the fish will actually hit the split shot instead of your hook, which is one of the most frustrating things ever. When you are targeting the fish, you, you have the bait right in front, and for some reason, the fish just tries to strike the lead split shot three or four times. And I'm just like, well, I wish there was a hook on my split shot, right? So I could catch it, but I don't. So yeah, happens. Yep. I'm just picturing a Keeley topwater bite right now. And <laughs> I'm thinking of the endless possibilities that Bobby and I could go out and have with that. Unreal. Uh, wow. Yeah, we have that problem too. Sometimes when we're fishing, they eat the indicator. Oh, it really pisses me off. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why they do that, but it really just eat the things underneath the indicator. I don't. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I want to go back to the Schuylkill. I okay. want to end on the Schuylkill. And actually, we're going to get some fun questions, um, which will probably be the hardest for you. Okay. Uh, when you're fishing the Schuylkill River, what's the technique? Again, I want to try to help our listeners out. How do we fish the Schuylkill? Is there, without spot burning, is there some place that you could easily go and just be like, I'm going to catch fish? Oh, bro. I mean, I'm not, first and foremost, I'm not worried about spot burning. Uh, when it comes to the urban areas of the river, at least, because the, the, uh, the SRDC, uh, the School River Development Corporation, which is actually a nonprofit, you know, 501c3, they've done such a good job when it comes to that river that when you go to Center City, Philadelphia, all the way from like a spring garden to Locust Street, we're talking Market, Chestnut, Walnut, and so on, there's so much access to that river that you can go anywhere over there and just drop a line. And they've been doing such a good job in, in recent years too, expanding that walking, biking trail to like even further south into Philadelphia and even building like uh, fishing piers, you know, out of it. So my recommendation for someone who just wants to go out there and catch some fish, okay, is just for you to put a sinker on, a hook, and just throw a worm in the water. You can do a dropper loop style. You can do a high-low rig. You can do a slip sinker setup. It doesn't really matter how you do it as far as your sinker stays put in the, in the river. One to two ounces, depending on the current and depending on the day. And there are so many different species that you will be able to catch just doing that. You know, there's a channel catfish, the Ictalurus 
punctatus, if you like carp fishing, like chumming, the Cyprinus carpio, there's a lot of carp in the Skugul River, up to 40 pounds. If you find the right spots and you chum heavily, like you mentioned, if you go under the Fairmount Dam, and I know at this point in the podcast, some people are going to give me a hard time for it because people always do, but it is already a burned out spot. You know, <laughs> everyone knows about yeah. the Fairmount Dam. If you go there at the right time, yes, you can catch some striped bass, the Moroni Sexatilis. The government has also stocked some hybrid stripers over there over the years that even nowadays, if you get lucky, you can catch some. Right now is the beginning of November, December. You can go there at night. And uh, if you're really courageous and you want to get risk getting robbed, you can go there and catch some walleye, the Zander Vitreos, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, it really, there's a lot of different species in that river. The, the key idea, though, is that, yeah, you need to get out of your couch and just go out there and, and cast a line, you know? And I mean, now it's a little bit late in the year, too. But in recent years, the flathead catfish population, right, the Pilodictus olivaris, has exploded in the river. So tidal and non-tidal portions, you can catch some big flatheads. Sea money fishing knows all about that. You can go out there and, uh, you know, catch some northern snakehead. Nowadays, the Shana Argus, the population, I mean, okay, I, I would I would not say happy or not happy about that. I don't want to take a stance on that. But the population is exploding nowadays, too. And earlier this year, I was right under the dam, you know, and we caught a few, like uh, owner of Eurotech and I, Ben and I, we were just throwing like little plastics under the dams. They, they come over, they snack on it, you set the hook. So it, it, it's a lot of fun. All different types of sunfish. We have uh, a migration for um, white perch, the Moroni Americana, during the spring and summer and fall. So you can go there and catch perch. There's yellow perch, the Perca flavicens. Uh, there's different types of sunfish, like the bluegill, Lepomis macrocerus, pumpkin seed, Lepomis gibosus, green sunfish, Lepomis cyanellus. So yeah, you can just go out there. And uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different species. Oh, and I forgot the most annoying one for the majority of anglers, right? The American eel, the Anguilla hostrata. That's the one that uh, you, you, you really don't want to catch because it's going to mess up with your line, you know? But there's a lot in the river too. I am actually glad that you mentioned uh, flathead catfish and northern snakehead because this, this question had just popped into my mind a, a minute or two before. So, you know, those are two species that for us here in, in Pennsylvania, you know, within the last decade or so, they've been showing up in more waters uh, that they were not in previously. Flathead catfish have kind of been embraced by the government and the angling community, whereas northern snakeheads, you know, there's still very much this polarized divide. So I guess my question is for life listers, um, you know, for a species that would maybe be considered invasive, like let's say northern snakeheads in these mm -hmm. waters, if you were to catch one uh, and, you know, trying to, to add that to your life list, does it need to be a native species? Or if it ah. is, you know, considered to be invasive to those waters, does that still count towards your life list okay okay yeah no that's that that's good yes it, it varies from life lister to life lister it really depends on your morals and ethics uh, at the end of the day when it comes to the to the practice of life listing so for example right i'm just going to use florida as an example because florida is oh man they messed up the the, the native ecosystem they're so bad the aquarium dudes release so many pets over there and then the government came in and they stocked peacock bass over there to try to get rid of invasives. So they stocked an invasive to get rid of invasives. 
So I'm just going to use Florida as an example, okay? If you go down to Florida as a life lister, the, the stuff is like paradise. There are so many different types of invasive species down there, cichlids that you can only find in, in Africa, right? And you can go down there and punch your numbers up real quick. So for example, personally speaking, if I go somewhere where the population is already established and it is like a big open body of water, like a big canal or something like that, and I catch it, yes, I will, I will add it on my, on my life list. But if, for example, we are talking about going to a private little community pond that is, is small and there is just one population of cichlids over there that someone released, like the Jack Dempsey or, you know, some, some other stuff like that. Uh, personally, I would not add it to my life list because that feels to me like I'm fishing out of like a fishbowl kind of thing, but it varies from life list to life list. So for example, I don't think Steve Wozniak would be mad if I said this in this podcast because he, he makes this, this he, he talks about this example himself, but the number one top life lister in the world, right? Which I, I respect the fella, I would like to emphasize. He has, for example, in the past, asked people to put a fish in a bucket, like, you know, in a hatchery. And he just went to the bucket, caught it on hook and line, and he added to his life list, you know, just, just like that. So it really depends on the person at the end of the day. Some people, they, they're like, yeah, I'm cool with that. Some people are like, I'm not so cool with that, right? Uh, some people, yeah, they have no problem adding any invasives to their life list. Some other people are like, yeah, I'm not a big fan, right? Uh, at the end of the day, we just have to respect everyone's decisions. I, I do make fun of Stephen Wozniak for that example a lot. But I, I would like to emphasize again, I do respect him, you know, because, uh, yeah, he, he is high uh, up there. Sure, so that absolutely. Is, that, is my take, that is my take on this question, yes. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. So I was in Philadelphia when they made the connection from the – South Street Bridge over to Walnut Street, that new bridge that they put in. So I was at the Riverloft. I found okay. the USB from the Riverloft. Um, so I can remember the name. But under there, they have this shed-like thing, which they have pictures of all the species you can catch. And the number one thing that's on there is the good old-fashioned American eel. Oh, wait a moment, dude. Are, are you are you talking about the, the little house that is kind of under the Walnut Street? It's right under Walnut Street, yeah. So that's where I Oh, was. dude, I was, I was a part of that, bro. Oh, you were? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Becca, there's, there's a sign on I'm there. sorry, I'm sorry. Please continue. Yeah. No, that was that was kind of where I was going with it. There's just a it's, – it's incredible how many people walk by that and they go, there's all these things in this river. Mm-hmm. And then it's even crazier when there is somebody actually fishing because you could see all the weird looks from like everyone that's walking by going like, oh, yeah, yeah. What is going on? The question I have for you mm-hmm. is because I've seen it before, but a lot of people actually eat fish out of that river. Oh, yes. I've seen them. They catch them. They put them in a ShopRite bag, which may or may not exist anymore in this world, but they're mm-hmm. plastic ShopRite bag and they take it home and they cut it off. Would you recommend or have you eaten out of this Google? So uh, that's actually a very, uh, once again, a very good question. I know I'm repeating myself a lot tonight, but you folks have been punching amazing questions over oh, here. Yeah. Fish consumption is a, is, is a tough topic. And it is really tough to talk to people about it in Philadelphia too. The, the Schuylkill River is a tributary of the Delaware River. It's part of the Delaware River system. And, you know, in particular, this area that you were talking about is, is the tidal is Schuylkill River, right? Below the Fairmount Dam. Yep. 
So, uh, I mean, if you know a little bit about the history of the city of brotherly love, you know that there was an industrial bloom in the 1800s. It really picked around the end of the 1800s. And uh, the water was so polluted back then because they didn't have regulations for, you know, for all the different factories and businesses just dumping things in the, in the river. It was so bad that by the beginning of the 1900s, people were dying of typhoid fever here in Philadelphia. I mean, the water was just not potable at all. I think it wasn't until the beginning of the 1900s up to 1905 that the Philadelphia Water Department started to add chlorine to our water to really make it potable for us to, to drink. But the good thing about this is that since the beginning of the 1900s, the Philadelphia Water Department, together with other nonprofit organizations, they have been gathering a lot of funds to clean up the river. Now, cleaning up a river, especially one that is so big, right? We're talking about open water environment. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And that's why nowadays, even nowadays, if you just go to the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission website, which is the organization here in Pennsylvania who takes care of all the stuff, they have fish consumption guidelines and fish consumption advisories. So for example, for the Schuylkill River, if you go online and you check the information there, they will tell you for certain species of fish to have a, a restricted amount of meat in ounces per month. And for some other species of fish to not have it at all. And they do that because they're worried, obviously, that people are going to eat those fish. And those fish, they have heavy metals, uh, PCBs, which is polychlorinated by phenyls, which accumulate in their meat that are going to get into you when you eat the meat and it's going to accumulate in your body, which is not good for you because of heavy metal toxicity. And in case of the PCBs, you know, you, you can even, you know, help with the production of carcinogens in, in the future. So yeah, I do not recommend people to eat a lot of species from the Schuylkill River, but not all of them. You need to go to the website, check the fish consumption guidelines, the, you know, what you can eat, what you cannot eat. Some species in the river, for example, they are, they're migratory. So you can go there, catch a few and, and you know, still eat in, in moderation. The bottom feeders in particular, like the catfish, the channel catfish and, and the common carp, I would assume, okay, and again, check the fish consumption guidelines, that if you practice selective harvest and you actually harvest the smaller ones, they will still be healthy and okay for you to eat. But yeah, obviously, if you go to the river and you take a 10-pound channel catfish that mm. has been living in that river for like over a decade, maybe, that that is not going to be good for you. The meat is not going to be as tender. There's going to be more heavy metals and PCBs, right, which is not really good for, for your health. So uh, once again, I'm going to conclude by saying don't poison your own family and don't poison yourself unknowingly. Definitely go out and seek information before harvesting anything in the Philadelphia area. I love your guidelines, but I have to ask you because you avoided the question. Have you eaten anything out of this Google River? Oh, yes, yes. I've, I've eaten. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that was part of the question. Yes. Every year when the white perch run the Google River, I usually have one to two meals during the summertime, Incredible. but again, I do harvest selectively. I don't really put the fish in the freezer. I go out there and maybe catch three or four perch for myself. That, that's it. No more than that. 
So it really depends on how you do it, right? For example, perks per day in Pennsylvania, the limit is 50 a day. Well, if you go out there and you catch 50 for yourself and you eat a lot of it over time, I don't know if that's going to be healthy for you. But if you eat three or four, right, uh, you take the fillets out and, you know, you can even weight it. Usually it's five, six ounces of meat. Yeah, for, for fish that are younger, not very big. I'm, I'm pretty positive you are going to be okay. I don't think 50 of anything would be good. Oh, for sure. I won't like always, but I don't think 50 cannolis would be good for me. <laughs> I don't know. I would like 50 cannolis. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, Leo, your science knowledge is, is incredible and you're a great storyteller. So I'm going to ask you now the hardest questions of this entire podcast. Sure, sure. Give me your most memorable fishing trip, whether it be good or bad, which I'd prefer bad, but we already talked about your seagulls stealing your batteries, but give us another example of a a typical Leo Shang trip. Okay, okay. I mean, do you want uh, one that is good and one that is bad oh, so we balance things both, out? Take both. Okay, let me start with the with the bad one then. Uh, one time I went to the Delaware River to, uh, well, okay, let me just say that I was there chasing a sp certain species that I would rather not talk about it on the, on the Delaware River. Okay. Uh, because of certain rules and regulations. Okay, let's just say I was going there to catfish. Okay. And I never fished that portion of the river before. So I hopped on the Wilmington line, the SEPTA Wilmington line. I got out in Chester and I did not do my research before getting out in Chester, Pennsylvania. So when I got out in Chester and I walked one block from there, I kind of realized that that thing was kind of similar to like a Kensington plus a Camden kind of vibe. Uh, houses were boarded up and people were doing very sketchy things on the street. But, you know, I just decided, all right, let's just go fishing by the river and everything is going to be okay. So I went out there by the river, caught a bunch of catfish, didn't catch my target species. Uh, by the time I was actually, uh, oh, listen, I'm not proud of saying this. Okay. Sometimes it is survival of the fittest, uh, by, on the, by the time I was walking back to the station, this hooded gentleman uh, decided to approach me and in a very aggressive way, ask for money. Let's just say it this way. And uh, I legit told him, uh, again, I'm not proud of this. It was a spur of the moment. You know, when that happens to you, you got to think fast. I just pointed to another dude on the street and I said, dude, I'm just here to fish, but maybe him got more money. <laughs> and then the dude just walked to that guy. And let me tell you, I just, Dude, I like not run because that would be too obvious, but I speed walk the heck out of there, man. Yeah, to, to the train station. So I'm not proud of that day, but but I'm comfortable talking about this story because, hey, I'm telling you how, how it was. It was a bad day and I hope nothing happened to, to the other person out there. You know? Okay. Yeah. So that was that's like a bad story. And um I guess a good fishing story is, well, back uh, last year, 2021, I finally got to fish my childhood spot back in Brazil again. So that was like a really nice fishing trip and really nice fishing session. Uh, my father had a stroke back in 2018. He is like kind of half body paralyzed. Mm. So it was really fun to just go back there, revisit the childhood spot and uh, do a fishing session, right? He's still able to fish though. Even half body paralyzed, dude, dude, dude still tries, you know? So it was nice to just catch a few species that I used to see back uh, when I was a kid 
And I guess one of the most special moments, it wasn't even like fishing related, but after we finished eating, we always used to go to this same restaurant in that city next to the reservoir. And we went there and the owner's sister was there and she recognized us, you know, and she was like, oh, you were the, the kid from like 20 years ago, right? I kind of felt a little bit old about that, but I was like, yeah, that, that, that was me, right? And we ate a meal there and, you know, it just ended so nice. So that is like definitely one of the good awesome. fishing sessions recently. Yeah. I didn't ask. Do you speak Portuguese? Oh yeah. Eu falo, eu falo português. Nasci, cresci em São Paulo. Sou paulista de coração. English is actually my fourth language. I also speak Chinese Mandarin. 我会说中文。我家庭是从青岛山东来的, uh, and I worked a lot with a lot of Mexican folks in the restaurant industry before. So, orale, hermano! <laughs> right, yo soy mexicano, yo soy poblano, me gusta los tacos, tacos al pastor, me gusta las chicas mexicanas, las chaparritas. Uh, so yes, I also speak uh, Spanish kind of on the Mexican side. Okay. Yeah. You're a jack of all trades over here. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you could say that. Yeah. All right. Last question before we wrap this up. Sounds uh, good. We asked where your next trip was. You told us it's Louisiana, but if you had the chance to go anywhere in the world, catch anything. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? What tiny fish are we chasing? Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> so I guess I guess if you asked me this question like uh, two years ago even, uh, I wouldn't really be able to give an answer. I would probably just tell you like, oh, go somewhere where I can catch a lot of species. But you know, uh, there's one particular spot in the entire world that kind of holds sentimental value to me. Uh, back in the days, like I told you, I was born and raised in Brazil, but my family is originally from China, in particular from the city of uh, Qingdao, from Shandong. And, uh, you know, back in the days, my family used to be pretty wealthy over there before the Communist Party kind of came into China, you know. So up to 1949, before the Chinese uh, civil, civil war, when the Nationalist Party got thrown out of there and the Communi Communist Party came in, my family used to own like so much land in this area. It was like a mountain, dude. Like we had an entire mountain over there. And, uh, you know, my family uh, graveyard is actually over there. And right between our house that we used to have in the graveyard, there's a little stream that passes there that leads to a, to a, to a reservoir. And, you know, we lost all of that when the Communist Party came up because my, my parents and grandparents, they were Nationalist Party folks. They took all the lands away from us and, you know, they promised to distribute evenly to the people and everything. Hey, hey, tell you what, I'm not too pissed about that kind of stuff. But one of the dreams, right, one of my dreams in life, if I have the opportunity, would be to go there back to that area to just revisit where my ancestors back in the days fished at. And in particular, my father, too, he fished there maybe 50 years. He's 60, 60 something right now. He fished probably about 55 years ago over there. So, yeah, if, if you ask me, like, dude, where do you want to go, like, right now in the world, if you have the opportunity, because right now I don't have that opportunity, uh, I would go there just to, to target, do life listing, obviously, uh, because I wouldn't have any species, freshwater species in China from over there. Actually, I would have the carp, sorry. But other than that, yeah, just go there and do life listing. Yeah. That's awesome. So one other thing I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of ask you that I was thinking about here, you know, we started off with talking about your, um, your growth and success with YouTube and content creation. And, and I guess one thing that I thought about is 
how do you manage the, the desire to just enjoy time fishing, enjoy time in the outdoors and the pressure of needing to create a new video or that content creation? Because I feel like that's something that probably, you know, a lot of us who are more involved with social media or, or any kind of content creation are, you know, trying to maybe struggle with ourselves some days more than others. So how do you manage that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, 100, I'm 100% with you, with you on that. You have to be able to separate the fishing for business and, uh, and the fishing for fun. And it took me uh, a good few years of doing this, this career, like being a content creator to really figure out like, how do I handle, like, how exactly do I balance things so that I, I don't really get burned out uh, at the end of the day? So the process that I use nowadays, uh, usually, is that uh, I have two different processes. The first process is I go out there with the mentality, I am going to shoot a YouTube video for today. I have the plot made, I have, uh, you know, different paths that this plot can take, and I give myself a certain amount of time uh, during the day to get the job done, just like any regular job. And once I have all the footage gathered and I have done the plot and it worked out well, I put the GoPro away, I put the cameras away, I don't worry about social media whatsoever, and I just fish for fun. You know, it is really the, the type of fishing that you go out there, uh, you don't need to worry about even taking the fish out of the water, you take it out of the water, put, unhook, put it right back. You don't need to worry about showing the release in the video. You don't need to worry about explaining to people anything. You're just out there exploring and, and walking and fishing and, and being happy with yourself. Now, the second process that I use, right, uh, different than this one, is sometimes when I feel like I'm very pressured when it comes to the job, I would take a little break for myself. Uh, I would like to emphasize that I am privileged enough nowadays as a YouTuber to be able to do this. But yes, I would take like just a tiny trip to myself, maybe two, three days live listing. And I would not worry about social media again whatsoever. I would take photos of my catches for identification purposes and scientific purposes because it's not always easy to identify them. But other than that, I mute everything. I mute Insta every day before I go to bed. Uh, I, my Instagram is on quiet mode. Uh, when, when I wake up, I mute Instagram right away, uh, eight hours of silence, something. I, all my notifications in my phone are silent notifications. The phone calls that I get are also muted uh, unless it is my family or, or my boss. And, you know, this is just a, it's a necessary evil when you work with social media. For a lot of people, I understand social media is a way to, to vent, to be happy, entertaining out there. Uh, I can understand, you know, when people go down to the Jersey Shore and, uh, you know, oh, caught a bluefish, a manasquan today, right? Posted there and then 30 people are there tomorrow. And I look at those things sometimes and I'm just like, maybe because I've done this job for too long, but sometimes I look at those things and I'm just like, man, I would never do that if I didn't do this job anymore, you know, because it got to the point that it's just like, okay, I'm doing it because it is, it is the job. And, you know, I joke about this to my subscribers, but it has a little bit of truth to it. I always tell them that it comes the day that I actually retire. Like I don't do YouTube anymore, or maybe I pick a different path in, in, in life. I'm going to delete all my social media that doesn't bring me monetization. Stop doing things. I'm going to delete Instagram, Facebook, you know, uh, and just, uh, you know, have a small maybe Facebook profile for my family, my friends, 
and just uh, relax, dude. Just relax. Maybe create one of the profiles in one of those live listing websites and just chill and live like a, a quiet life. Let me tell you, that's the best type of life in my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. You know, I, I think more and more we see the conversations come, come up about, you know, whether somebody is, are they fishing for pleasure because they actually enjoy the sport and enjoy spending time outdoors? Mm -hmm. or are they just doing it for social media? So I think, you know, the perspective that you just offered was that, you know, that great uh, balance that I think a lot mm -hmm. of people are trying to find. Yeah, yeah. I hope you, I hope you get there one day, Leo. I, I hope I do too, because I, I hate social media. I find it. Oh, uh, I mean, I tell you what things so far have been working great for me. Uh, things are going great with Euro tackle too. You know, uh, we actually have a whole broad project coming out next year. So, you know, uh, I have like three lures within the selection, uh, with them. So, I mean, in terms of monetary gains, right. And financial stability, Thankfully, the, the, the job is doing well. I don't need to worry too much about that, which, you know, it, it relieves a lot of my of my stress. Now, when it comes to just like the content creation and, and things like that, I, I still enjoy. I still enjoy it a lot, you know, filming and fishing and editing. I think I'm going to be doing this for, for a good while. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, truly like like this job. So I'm very lucky to, to be able to tell people, yeah, like I'm a content creator on YouTube, you know? Yep. No, that's awesome. We look forward to watching them. <clears throat> uh, last question for you, but it's not really a question because we're going to wrap this up. So sure, you've been shining this whole time, but this really is your moment to shine. So let listeners know where to find you, how to get into contact with you and plug all those sponsors that you want to shout out right now. Oh, I see. Okay. So uh, yeah, people can just uh, look me up on different social media platforms with the name extreme philly fishing i actually have a facebook page extreme philly fishing instagram page extreme philly fishing youtube extreme philly fishing i am known in the community as the dink master so you know look up dink master i'm there too maybe i'm gonna start a tiktok account in the future to make gen z happy you never know and uh, yeah, uh, as for sponsors, I, I really only have one nowadays. I would like to give a big thank you to uh, Benoit Venuvenhova, the, the owner of the Eurotaco company. I've been working with him for a while, and he was the one person back in the days, you know, who, I mean, I didn't really tell you in this live stream, but uh, we worked for a little while in 2016, 17, and then we stopped working together because I got fed up with all the sponsorships and the corporate life and things like that. And this is when I really need to give him a big shout out because he was the one who reached out to me with another business opportunity. And since I partner up with Eurotaco, we came out with like uh, three different lures, you know, that are part of my soft plastic collection with him. Like I said, we got a rod project coming out next year, the EPF ultralight rod. So yes, uh, these opportunities would have not come if he really didn't reach out to me, you know? So I, I have to thank him a lot for that. And obviously, you know, got to thank the fan base, man. You know, always got to thank the fan base who are out there live listing, watching, doing all the fishing, right? And got to thank you folks too, right? For running the, the podcast over here and having this great opportunity to just talk about my personal, my career and live listing. I know that Kwa is not here. Hey, hey, Kwa, if you're watching this right now, and Dan, if you're watching this right now, uh, all the fights that we had in the past, uh, all under the water, okay? 
I don't even care about those things anymore. All right. I mean, I don't even remember what it was about. All right. Saltwater community stuff, probably. But I'm glad to hear Kwa, Dan, Bobby, Tyler. And I think the other person was named Lee. Lee that yeah. you folks are, are doing a good job here at the podcast. Okay. I appreciate it. I hope you folks keep growing and continue doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Leo. Yeah, we, uh, like I told you in the beginning of this, this thing just kind of snowballed for us and it's been a lot of fun. We've met a lot of people. It's even cooler when we get those messages that we actually help somebody catch a fish somewhere or some special fish. I'm really looking forward to the one where somebody tells me they call it Killy on white tackle with the size <laughs> of the hook. It's, it's going to happen. So uh, but I just want to thank you again for being a, go, uh, a guest today. You have been what I consider a class act, my friend. Oh, uh, dude, I would like to thank you again, you know. I would like uh, your opinions, just all fantastic. And we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I, I definitely gained a lot of new perspectives on, on life <laughs> listing. Gave me a lot to think about with that. Oh, awesome, bro. I appreciate it. Yeah, this has been uh, something completely different, Monty Python, and now for something completely different, and I love it. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, Leo. Okay, so have a good night. Again, we really appreciate you being on here, and we wish you all the best and all the success and everything you do. And I'll look forward to that next YouTube video or the new tackle and rods that are coming out from Euro Tackle. Likewise, bro. Peace out, man. All right, man. Take care. Tight line. All right, take care. Oh, before I conclude, I guess I should say because I always forget. If you do like what you hear on this podcast, uh, please give us a follow on all your social media platforms. We are Tide Chasers. That's Tide underscore Chasers. Um, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, um, all the podcast platforms again. Uh, if there's something you want to hear or something you like, give us a shout out. Let us know what's going on, uh, something you want to hear in the future. And with that, I wish everyone uh, a good day or a good evening and tight lines, everyone. Tight lines, everybody.